thank you for setting your podcast dial today to 14th and G. I'm your host, Dean Hinkson, and I'm very pleased to be joined by our founding partner at the firm, Bruce Melman, as well as a man who really needs no introduction, known as the architect of President George W. Bush's successful presidential runs in 2000 and 2004. Carl Rove served that administration as senior advisor and deputy chief of staff for policy. He oversaw the offices of strategic initiatives, political affairs, public liaison, and intergovernmental affairs. Busy man. As an author, columnist, and television pundit, Carl focuses his analysis on political strategy, which makes him every election season the wizard of the whiteboard. Carl Rove, Bruce Melman, welcome to 14th and G. Good to be there. Thank or you, wherever it is in, in cyber world, in cyber universe. And Carl, I'm, I'm really, I really do appreciate you taking the time today because I can't think of anyone better suited to discuss the future of the Republican Party. You know, whatever happens in less than 100 days from now on Election Day, the fight to not only lead the party, but to define it is going to be on. And we're already seeing the jockeying for position in the House. You got the Freedom Caucus jumping ugly with Liz Cheney. Uh, senators like Josh Hawley and Tom Cotton burnish their populist credentials every day. And, and we've even seen some early light skirmishes between the camps of Vice President Pence and Ambassador Nikki Haley. Uh, the party's seen variations of this fight in its modern history, Rockefeller versus Goldwater, Reagan versus Ford. Is this going to be Trump brand populism versus traditional conservatism? Do moderates have a voice here? Who and what follows Donald Trump? Yeah, I don't think it's as, it's not exactly analogous to the, some of these previous battles because they really were, you know, Rockefeller versus Goldwater was sort of Sunbelt conservatism versus the sort of um, longstanding Northeastern moderate republicanism. And you had strong personalities with uh, strong ideas and particularly in the case of of, uh, of, of Rockefeller, a sort of a, a longstanding tradition that went back to literally the era of the progressive Republicans in the 1910s and 20s. This is going to be more diffuse because Trump is not a he's not an ideological conservative. He is not a, you know, read deeply in Buckley and Adam Smith and Von Mises is some guy used to have a, a deli over on 45th and <laughs> I, I, I Hayek used to, wasn't that guy used to make bespoke coats? I mean, you know, it's like. They were beautiful so, coats, beautiful coats. <laughs> yeah, beautiful coats, beautiful coats. You know, there is something to his philosophy, obviously. American for America first, it, at the heart of it has a lot of protectionism, a lot of populism. But populism is not an ideological course of action. It's, it's more a sentiment. That's why you can see it expressed on the right and left. It's an antagonism towards the existing structure of the relationship between ordinary people in their government. And you can you can look at that from the right and you can look at that from the left. I, I think this is going to be more interesting. I think people are going to sort of say the the, the sort of Ronald Reagan consensus of what constant what it meant to be a Republican, you know, limited government and low taxes and uh, strong military and anti-communism and an op sunny optimism that the American dream was alive and well for anyone who wanted to participate in it. Those kind of things are going to be challenged and challenged, I think, in a very strong fashion in the in the aftermath of the election, win, lose or draw. But particularly if President Trump does not win re-election, I think that's going to break out in a robust debate over issues that will have an impact on the 2022 
midterms and obviously then the run up to the 2024 presidential election. And just looking ahead to to who might emerge, you see some of the brightest lights in our party is our Republican governors. They're providing competent conservative governance, uh, sometimes in very blue states where they're incredibly popular. Uh, Charlie Baker in Massachusetts, Eric Holcomb in Indiana, Mike DeWine in Ohio, Larry Hogan in Maryland. Once upon a time, these governors seem to have a real advantage uh, over senators and outsiders, not only winning the nomination, but getting to the White House. Any chance we'll see a return of gubernatorial ascendance? We, we could, but I think it's different than it was in the 90s. Remember, this is when we had, uh, you know, we had Ronald Reagan, who obviously was, you know, in many ways sui generis, but he had been the governor in the 1970s in, of California, you know, from, for two terms in the late 60s and early 70s and been a successful governor. Then we had George W. Bush, uh, who'd been the successful governor of Texas for, for a term and a half. But the 80s, late 80s, and particularly the 90s, we were entranced as a party with all of these interesting people out there being governors. Because as Washington seemed to be deadlocked on big issues facing the country, we were having welfare reform and tax reform and education reform and civil justice reform. All of these things were happening at the state level and providing a lot of excitement for policy nerds who, who wanted to chart a new way forward. I, you know, we, you, we got some exemplary people. You mentioned a number of them. Uh, Charlie Baker's done a magnificent job in Massachusetts and Holcomb has got that sort of Midwest solidity that's great. But but I, I just don't sense that the the political dynamic is such that, that the governors have got the upper hand. I think from I don't know why I say this, but my gut tells me after the election, it's going to be the Senate that's going to be where we see a lot of interesting ideas pursued. We're already seeing it with, you know, people like Holly and Rubio. But there are going to be others that emerge after this election and maybe even emerge after the 2020 two midterms. I mean, one of the things that has happened is both it's, the, these presidential contests have continued to get longer, but it gets to be easier to organize and raise funds for them in the in the social media age. Hey, Dean, if I can follow on that, because something Carl said there intrigued me. Uh, a description of Ronald Reagan is sui generis, but I, I sometimes wonder whether Reagan wasn't an inclusive Goldwater-ism. And I wonder, you know, certainly 76 Reagan was Goldwater-like. 80 Reagan, and especially by 84 Reagan, was very inclusive. He grew the party. And I wonder whether there is the possibility of, of an inclusive Trumpism. If you lose the kind of the unnecessarily divisive uh, tweets and the, and the things that are going to shrink the, the overall base, could somebody on areas such as trade and such as uh, the kind of the populist approach to big, big tech or big China have a have a uh, have a, a vision and, and an approach to the party that would grow among the demographics that the GOP needs to grow on if it doesn't want to go the way of the California GOP. Well, some of those. Yeah. Well, some of that. That's true. I mean, for example, China, I think, is one of the going to be the one of the more interesting issues to be talked about because there's an emerging bipartisan consensus that China is a great challenge to the United States strategically, militarily, economically. Similarly, Donald Trump has succeeded in one thing that I thought would be impossible, and that is to make the, make the Democratic Party anti-Russia. But we also have a bipartisan <laughs> consensus on Russia for different reasons. But one of the issues with China is going to be, you know, what, what are you trying to do? And so I think they're going to be, are you going to emphasize human rights? Are you going to emphasize trade? When you talk about trade, are you interested in rebalancing it so that they buy more from us than they have traditionally bought? Or do you want to protect American intellectual property 
And do you want them to play by the rules regardless of what the outcome is for the U.S.? And I think we're going to likely see it be a robust debate there, in part because the administration's approach has been, you know, at one moment it's mercantilist. And when Peter Navarro's in charge, by God, the only good trade policy with China is where they buy a lot more from us than we buy from them. At other moments, it's protectionist. You know, they they need to they need to buy more from us, but you know, they ought to buy more from what what we what we need to sell, like soybeans from North Dakota. At other moments, it is to my mind, sort of free trade, they insist that if you're going to lit, if you're going to say that you're going to abide by the international trading rules, by God, you ought to abide by them. And so we're going to hold you to account. And then others uh, in a more nuanced fashion by saying, yes, we need to make them abide by international trading norms. But we rec- need to recognize at the heart of their trading practices are things that are designed to exploit the transparency of the West and steal our intellectual property in order to gain strategic advantage on technologies that are going to dominate uh, the 21st century. I remember uh, sitting down to lunch with the president of Microsoft and he said, you know, 5G, the, Soviet, the Russian, excuse me, Chinese dominance of 5G worries me because the most powerful country in the 21st century is going to be the one with the biggest pot of data. And 5G is going to give the Chinese, if they control it, it's going to give them the ability to, to sweep up vast amounts of data each and every day with us ever knowing it. So that's going to be one of the interesting debates is going to be, do we care about the Uyghurs, for example? Do we care about having them in the WTO? Do we care about having allies who join us in making arguments that they're violating international trading norms? Do we think about creating strategic alliances that begin to hem in the Chinese? I mean, lots of interesting questions are going to emerge in the aftermath of the election. You know, Carl, you mentioned the uh, the 1990s, a, a decade near and dear to my heart, because it's when uh, I came of age and, and got politically involved. And I remember back then, you know, the backbone of the local party structure were uh, these Republican women's clubs, including my own mother. Uh, they staffed the phone banks and put up the yard signs and worked the polling places. And it just seems we've lost some of that structural foundation. There's certainly fewer women, uh, Republican women in Congress now than at the start of the last decade. And in in terms of national appeal, uh, it seems like the party's currency with women voters uh, is at a bit of an ebb. Uh, How do we bring women back into the party as voters, as office holders and and participants in the party? Yeah. Well, first of all, to recognize it's a problem. And second of all, I'll go, go all out to recruit and support qualified, competent women candidates who look like America. That's why I'm so excited about, you know, like young Kim out in California. That's why I'm excited about, you know, Latino, Latina candidates and, 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 and frankly, all, all women candidates. I mean, we, you know, it's in Texas legislature. We got to half as many Republican women today as we had when we were in the minority. And that's just ridiculous. So first of all, it's recruiting good candidates. But you're right. We've got to begin back at the beginning and, and, and rebuild everything in this regard. I'm, I'm the, chairman of a, the chairman of the board of a thing called the Volunteer Engagement Project, which has got in Texas for the Texas Republicans. It's got two goals. One is to reinvigorate uh, grassroots auxiliaries and volunteer base. And second of all, to put them to work registering 100,000 new Republicans for the 2018 election. We started last July. Former state party chairman Steve Munisterius, the senior advisor to it, and one of our goals was to beef up the, the Texas Federation of Republican Women. And he had a brilliant and cheap idea. We took the primary voter list, which in Texas has, ra- has age and sex on it, gender, and we picked out women who had voted under age 35 or younger, who voted in like two out of three of the last Republican primaries, 
and women over the age of 35 who voted in like three out of the last four. We geocoded them by which one of the 151 Republican women's clubs was closest to them and then spit out the list of names, phone numbers, cell phone numbers where we could get them and gave them to the clubs and said, why don't you invite them? And what happened is it was a cheap, cheap and easy way for for the Federated Republican Women's Clubs. Let's call that list of the women under the age of 35 who think like us and ask them to come. And as a result, they dramatically increased their membership for the first time in years. Now, we got to do that on a sustained basis. We did it with the college Republicans. Well, gave them a small amount of money and a plan and let them go to work. Polling numbers with women for Trump are, are just bad. Is, is there anything that's redeemable here in the 2020 campaign? Yeah, there is. But he, what he's got to do is, is understand what issues matter to those women, because right now what they're thinking is two things. One is don't think he takes the coronavirus seriously. Women traditionally have had higher, higher levels of concern about the family's health care and hence about you know, fan, threats to the family health. And we've seen no bigger threat in our lifetimes to the health of American families than, than the coronavirus. And so they're concerned about it. So is he taking it seriously? They're the ones who have to worry about what, 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 what about my kids going back to school? What about my parents or my husband's parents? What about what about our friends? And, and they're, they're concerned. The second thing is, is that they are open to voting for him, despite the fact that they may not like how he handles himself. If he makes the case that he's better than the other guy, but he has yet to begin to make that in a way that really talks to the issues they're most concerned about. So, yeah, there's plenty of time and there are plenty of things to talk about. They're concerned about the coronavirus today, but they're also concerned about the family's finances and the prospects and opportunities for themselves, for their spouses and for their kids. And even today among that group, Trump has an advantage when it comes to who do you think would be better at restarting our American economy? Donald Trump, you had a sense of what he could do from 2017, 2018, 2019, and the first couple of months of 2020, or Joe Biden, you have a, you have a, recollection of what he's capable of doing by the sort of the anemic growth of 2009 through the end of 2016. So, but elections are about choices. Uh, Presidential re-elections are in part about what you've done, but you can't make it vote for me. I've done a great job because people are going to be saying, well, you know, Great. You did, maybe you did a good job. Maybe you didn't. But but I want to know what you're going to do over the next four years. The pandemic response is such uh, an, is an issue unto itself. You wrote a phenomenal book on the election of 1896 called The Triumph of William McKinley. And uh, I commend it to folks who are listening. Uh, whoever thought we might see a return uh, to front porch campaigning. You're such a deeply read student of American political history. Is there any parallel for the COVID pandemic in our political history and the way it's upended daily life and culture and politics? Are there any lessons there politicians can take in dealing with this in the midst of a presidential election? There's never been anything like it in a presidential election. We did have the midterm of 1918 that was disrupted by both a war and by uh, the Spanish flu. But no, there's nothing exactly analogous to this. Now, American politics is rarely placid. Just about the time that we think we've figured out what the equilibrium is for something, events intrude, technology intrudes, social change intrudes, culture change intrudes, and everything gets to be different. You think politics was easy before, easier before the, the, the emergence of television? You know, no. I mean, it, it was, it was it, they were dealing with radio. I mean, everything through the course of Amer- the American political history has seen these disruptions of technology, you know, Uh, more rapid communications in the 1820s and 30s, 
We had the emergence of the telegraph, so we contained news was now being transmitted instantaneously. We had the, the creation of cheap daily newspapers because of improvements in printing processes in the 1870s and 80s. We had the urbanization of America, which created even a multiplicity of newspapers. We had the emergence of radio and starting in 1920. We had the emergence of television first in the, in, in the 40s, but really in, a, in big force in the 1950s. We've now got you know, the social media. We had the internet somewhere along there in the 90s. It's just amazing how much technology has changed politics and similarly how much events have changed politics and social change. But nothing, we've seen nothing like this. And in a weird way, it's going to force us back in some ways and force us forward in other ways. For example, I do think that we're going to, rather than having, you know, rallies where we're, you know, going from city to city on a bus or fl- dropping it out of the sky four times a day with rallies in different states and hangars. Instead, we're going to be giving set pe- more set-piece speeches. It's going to be more things that where, where, where something happens, either somebody gives a speech or somebody goes where somewhere to be seen talking about something they want to talk about. I think it's going to turn us back to the era in which local voices were really, really important, where, where people who are out there in the hinterlands sort of, you know, repeating the messages of the of the major candidates is going to be important. And then social media is just going to be terrifically important, which is going forward. We're going to have to depend more on digital means to communicate, organize and fundraise than we ever have before. So, hey, uh, Carl, a question I had, though, is social media is is incredibly disruptive and, and it's doing a lot of things at the same time. It's definitely giving voice to people who otherwise felt out of the process. But it's also radically undermining the traditional gatekeepers and the traditional institutions, parties and mainstream media among them. If you're advising a campaign running in, say, 2024, do you at this point, do you fully abandon mainstream media? Do you feel like because of, of the fragmentation through social media, the, the larger voices of the Fox News are actually more important? What's your what's your strategy and what's your advice to deal with the fragmentation and the fact that everybody is now a publisher. The demands are that you have to do more. You can't do less. You can't say, you know what, I'm not going to be talking to the NBCs and ABCs of the world. I'm not going to be talking to my local TV. I'm just going to be focused on my own social media network or Fox News. When, when, we, had, when we only had newspapers and along came radio, did we say, let's give up the newspapers and, and, and just focus on radio? No. It, it, when radio was there and we'd become accustomed to it and along came television did we say give up television no when 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 we got accustomed to television along came the internet did we say well we, we really only need to worry about email no when social media came along did we say oh well we don't need to worry about the about email we don't need to worry about radio we don't need to worry about television we don't need to worry about newspapers only social media uh-uh, it's made the that's why it's making the job of running for president in many ways easier because of the, these these powerful tools to organize, raise money, and communicate, but it's also made it more complicated in that, that the message matters even more because you're bathing in a constant stream of messages, and those messages create a sense of who your candidate is and what the candidate cares about. Carl, speaking of fragmentation, I'm really curious your view on this movement. I guess you might say it's within the party, the Never Trumpers. Uh, you've got the Lincoln Project out there, I guess, is the most prominent manifestation in this current campaign, uh, though it seems to me uh, those folks in particular have crossed a line. You're calling yourself a Republican and you're funding campaigns against Joni Ernst and Cory Gardner. 
is this uh, are these folks burning a giant pile of cash to no effect or is this a faction that uh, has a future in the Republican Party? Well, I, I don't think it has a, a future in the Republican Party. Um, I think it's a group of consultants who've decided that, you know, this is the way they're going to go out. They're entitled to their opinion. They're, but, but can you imagine after, you know, it's one thing to say, I don't like the president. It's another thing to say, I want to burn down the entire house. And oh, incidentally, when, you, when I'm finished burning down the house, you need to look at me to be your next contractor. Uh, that's not going to help us. Yeah, actually, so, Dean, I wonder about it less about them than my observation is both parties right now are in the middle of civil wars and both are trying to figure out what they believe in and who they want to be. Uh, both civil wars are on a bit of a pause. In the case of the Republican Party, it's Trump's party while he's the president. But as Carl pointed out, when he steps off stage, there's a big debate about which way to go and how do you build a durable majority. Likewise, Joe Biden right now is, is, was the consensus choice, not because he's got this longstanding vision of what the Democrats want to be, but because everybody thinks he has the best shot at beating Donald Trump, which is the only thing that really unifies the Democrats' progressive wing and, and the more traditional moderate wing that don't find themselves Trumpers, but definitely don't find themselves with AOC and the squad. Uh, I largely agree with Bruce, but I'm not certain I'd say that it rises to the level of civil war inside the Republican Party yet. I mean, because I don't see outside of the, the outside of the never Trumpers, I don't see people in open revolt against a Trump. Now, that, that, that part of the reason is because you can disagree with something Trump says or you can chart your own course because he doesn't have a policy apparatus in the White House that allows him to lead that process. He, he, he more often follows rather than leads. I mean, the tax, he said, I want a tax cut. And the Republicans on the House Ways and Means Committee and the Senate Finance Committee said, we do too, and we'll write it. You know, it, it's, it's tended to be sort of if, you know, he'll suggest I want to do something, but he rarely has the kind of definitive view of what that is that, that you'd expect to come out of, a, out of a normal White House. So I think there's I think there are simmering conflicts and 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 fractures that are that are stressed out inside the Republicans. But I think that's different than the Democratic Party, where you have, you know, Sanders having run four years before and then spent four years continuing to articulate, sharpen and drive his doctrine and then finding it being uh, supported by a number of people in the Democratic Party who win primaries in heavily Democratic districts and begin to to sort of dominate social media and and the dialogue of the party, the so-called squad. So I, I, you know, they may not be legislators, but they certainly are communicators, and they are joining with him and communicating a far more progressive, far more left-wing view uh, for the Democratic Party than it's heretofore had. I think you're right. Although I will be interested, it does feel to me that in a post-Trump Republican Party, there are profound disagreements over trade, there are profound disagreements over immigration. And, and there are profound disagreements about regulating big tech. And while everybody's on pause because Trump dominates, that civil war is just, in my mind, on pause, not non-existent. Yeah, I think that's right. Well, Carl, we're, uh, we're just about three months out from Election Day. Trump is pretty consistently down in national polling and in a number of the battlegrounds. What this race, I think we all expect and know, is going to tighten but what are the bellwethers? What are the things you're looking at over the next three months to tell you uh, which way this election's headed? Does it seem to be that the coronavirus cases are, are, are flatlining and beginning to drop and, and our deaths flatlined? And the good news for Trump is 
is that both of those things appear to be happening. I, I, I read the morning dispatch every day and they have a fantastic chart that shows the seven day rolling average for both cases and deaths. And we are, you know, we have a thousand deaths a day from this, which is terrible. Don't get me wrong, but it's less than a third of what it was in March and April. And the caseloads, while they are dramatically up, uh, are now beginning to level off nationwide. Put those two facts together and we're, we ought to celebrate that our, we're finding better therapeutics, better treatments. We're, we're fortunate in that we're doing a better job of keeping the more vulnerable among us from being hit. Instead, more of these are, are younger people who have greater resilience in overcoming this. They, they're in the hospital less often and they stay there less, uh, much shorter periods of time. But I, I think that's one. Second of all is the economy. And third of all is going to be the conduct of the two campaigns. I mean, the, the question is going to be, is Trump going to wake up and show a modicum of discipline in, in saying, here are the big differences between me and my opponent? And is Biden going to be able to show more energy and oomph than he has here to, and to hold his own in the debates? I think the debates have the potential of playing a bigger role than at any time since perhaps 1980, where they, they, they did play a significant role in that people, you know, people sort of looked at, at Ronald Reagan and said, well, you know, I'm not certain I can vote for him. I'm disappointed with our man uh, Carter, but I don't know if uh, he's up to it. And of course, he turned up, he turned out to be up to it. Well, we often think we know the winner, but that's why we play the game. Carl Rove, Bruce Melman, thank you for joining me on 14th and G. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Appreciate Dean. It. Thank you, Carl.